I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try to worship God in spirit and truth, talk about things we think are important. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Um, remember, May 5th, May 5th, a two-hour special right here in the Heart of the Matter studio where we're going to have five-point Calvinist extraordinaire, the founder and uh, I guess the proprietor of CARM, Christian Apologist Research Ministry, Matt Slick, he is going to be here to teach us about what Calvinism is and what it is not by and through presentation and my asking questions. Uh, Mark Pizan is going to, uh, not referee, because we're not going to need a referee, but host it like he's done the Inquisition, like he did with sitting down with, uh, with uh, Jason Wallace, Pastor Jason Wallace. Now listen, if you watch the show for any length of time, you know that I have a, a true disdain uh, for Calvinism. Uh, I, I do not like it at all. Uh, I, I frankly place it on the level of Mormon theologically, theologically, uh, Mormonism, uh, which I know is really stepping out there, but I find the tenets just repulsive to what I read in the Bible from a contextual point of view. Now, nevertheless, any Calvinist uh, who claims the gospel is my brother in the Lord. And I am not saying I'm right. I do admit I could be wrong. I'm missing something. As for me, one of the benefits of having Matt Slick on the show is to illustrate this, that I'm going to be able to get along with a, with a man who holds beliefs I absolutely do not agree with at all, as well as learning from him on things that I apparently have gotten wrong. Matt contacted us and said, you're not teaching Calvinism properly. So we said, well, all right. He said, I can come on the show and, 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 and show you what it's all about. We said, fine. So again, that's Tuesday, May 5th, two-hour Heart of the Matter special with Matt Slick of CARM. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. I was having a conversation with my friend Rick the other day, and whenever I mentioned this, I'm conv convinced that whatever worldview a person has, um, they, it will color the way they see the rest of life around them. Uh, somebody who's a fundamentalist anything will see the, word, the world through those fundamentalist views. Uh, and not only how they interpret the world around them, but it will also affect how you interpret scripture. It's one of the oddest realities I have ever seen in the human experience, but it does explain why Catholics see Catholicism in the Bible and Mormons see Mormonism in the Bible and Calvinists see Calvinism through the Bible. But while people often see what they are looking for, we find and discover the stuff we want to support our particular views. Seekers of God and spirit and the truth seem to relentlessly pursue him until they reach the end of the rainbow or until they reach the top of the mountain. And I'm going to use that in an illustration right now. We might liken this reality in life to the, the entire uh, human race getting on a bus. And we start traveling through the desert and it's flat, it's below sea level. And there is a sign that says, um, uh, strip bar. There's a certain percentage of people on the bus who are going to say, 
ding, 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 I, I'd like to get off here. And they get off and they'll make their home in the strip bar. They'll make, they, the strip bar will actually become their worldview. It happens. The bus will continue on and then they'll come up, will come upon a hotel. And some people will say, wait, 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 I want to do my living in these. It has a pool, it has a roof over my head. There's vending machines. That's pretty good food. I'll enjoy living my worldview out of the hotel, motel. And then we go on and people will continue to get off. There's people who love amusement parks. There's people who live for concerts. Uh, I mean, national parks will come upon those and people will get off and they'll say, this is, this is really what I'm about, you know, zoos. Whatever it is, it's gonna color the way we see life and our respective choices. Now, some people move from those places, but wherever we kind of plant ourselves, that will become our worldview. Therefore, there are a lot of people who see the world through sports. I mean, that's how they, I mean, everything is a sports analogy, you know? Go for the goal, son. <laughs> don't, don't give up. <laughs> Carry it across, all these analogies. There's people who are totally into service clubs, the Elks and the, and the, and the whatever. There are people who are into the careers and everything's around their career. Academia, that's a huge one, science, political aspirations. Then there are those, the bus starts to climb up to some, what we would call higher elevations. And you start to get into the foothills of philosophy. And some people say, man, that's where I'm gonna make my place. I'm gonna stand on these hills and look out and I'm gonna see the world and see above me through philosophy, right? And some may climb into the mountains of religious truth. And then we have people who are Buddhists and we have people who are Muslim and, and everything else. Well, as a believing Christian now, I'm gonna represent Christianity. I think Christianity, we would call that the uh, gospel mountain. And in Christianity, the gospel mountain is Everest. There's no higher place on the face of this earth. It's Everest, in my opinion. And Gospel Mountain, though, has a lot of homes on it. It's all the Gospel Mountain, but you have a lot of trails. There's Eschatology Ridge, and there's, and there's Soteriological Paths, and, and there's Harmatology Switchbacks, and Cosmology, and Ecclesiology, and all these different paths that people go on. And all those trails, they lead to Camp Calvinism, and Camp Arminianism, and, 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 and Camp Catholicism, and Camp Baptists, and, and of course, there are smaller sites too, all along Gospel Mountain. Everybody, and they see what they found, and they stop climbing, and they say, I like it right here. I have friends right here. I like these teachings. They resonate to me. And from where I'm standing, I can see everything and it makes complete sense to me. Are all camping on the same gospel mountain? Of course they are. They're all on the same gospel mountain. Can one camp claim to see heaven? or understand earth life better than another? They do, they certainly do. But all they're really doing is projecting their vista onto the rest of us and saying here on the east side of, of, of Gospel Mountain, we have a better view of life below and of life above. So you have to come to the east side. For a time our journey, from the time our journey began, I would suggest that there is only one destination to get to on Gospel Mountain and I call it subjective summit. It's the top. It's the top of the place. There a person has gotten higher off the earth, closer to heaven and has a better view of everything below them when they can comfortably get there and say, there's no more. I have nowhere to go except right here. And from here, I don't need to judge anybody who's sitting around me. I see things the way I see them. The Spirit has moved me up to this point. And you give up, essentially. You essentially say, okay, what more to do? But it's so darn difficult to get there. It's so fraught with temptations to pull off back at the hotel or off onto this camp or that camp that people don't want to believe that reaching up higher is worth it or is necessary or is possible. So they settle for seeing everything from a lower elevation, wherever that might be, from a camp that's teeming with like-minded people or like-dressed people, or from a camp that seems best only because everybody there is too fearful or tired to climb any higher. 
What is your worldview and what forms it? Ask yourself, what is forming your worldview? On what principles have you made your Christian home and what have you allowed to color your understanding of Scripture? Are you able to say, I'm going to get rid of that? I'm going to take that and I'm going to get rid of it. And I'm going to ask God, show me your scripture without this color, without this lens. I want to see it this way. Do you have that? Now, having said all that, we're going to do a quick experiment. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to give any commentary on it. I'm just going to read it and then we're going to go straight to prayer. You tell me how you read this, how you see this, okay? And I, brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are not still able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are not you carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we seek you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for sending us your only begotten Son and for uh, comforting us through your Holy Spirit, which teaches us all things. We pray you'll be with our volunteers, our staff, and everybody else who is around us, Lord. We pray for those who are in the studio tonight and those who are watching at home and on the archives, those who are seeking truth that you will find, that they will discover it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are talking about Christian subjectivity being the only viable solution to the mess Christianity has, has been in and continues to be in relative to, not, to denominationalism and dogma and division. We've been trying to explain why the teaching of sola scriptura which is one of the five solas that the uh, reformers brought in, sola scriptura, scripture alone, uh, and that the Protestants say is the rule of faith for the body, sola scriptura, and why it's a fail. And we've been given reasons over the past two weeks. Quickly, let me run through the reasons. First, Jesus never wrote anything, and he never had his apostles and told his apostles right he told them to preach. He told them to teach. They wrote as a means to instruct people around that time, but he never told them to go and write. Then two, if there has ever been a time when the New Testament completely was needed, it would have been in the first 300 years of its existence when everything was up in arms. And we have to ask, why didn't God provide his word complete then if it was sola scriptura and so important, but instead we didn't get it till 1500s really as a complete source. Third, the Holy Spirit has always served to unify and bring people together under one roof. Sola Scriptura has done nothing but divide and bring denominationalism and sectarianism and, and division over all sorts of doctrines. They claim Sola Scriptura is the way, but look what it's done. 35,000 denominations. Four, the logic of sola scriptura completely fails when we look at worldwide literacy rates. 
which were at 15% up until the 1800s. Even if people had a Bible, they probably couldn't read it. Okay? So literacy rates don't support sola scriptura. In Christianity, we weigh out principles and we compare what is good against what is bad. If we weigh out the physical principles of, of religion, we have to weigh out all the physical aspects of Catholicism versus all the physical aspects of Mormonism, and it's an impossible thing to do. That, that, that thought takes a little time to go into, but... Number six, believers, Paul says, are the epistles of Christ. Believers are the epistles of Christ. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, Paul says, written not with ink, not with ink. It's the spirit within individuals that lives and speaks to others. But with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but with fleshly tables of the heart. I got an email that says, you took that out of context. I don't think I took it out of context. He says, anything that's written in ink, that's not what you are. You're an epistle, a living, walking epistle. That's the spirit moving in somebody. Written with ink could be the written word. It could be uh, tablets written in stone. Whatever is written. And I sub supplement that thought with number seven. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, who also made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If I hold up a K right here, the letter K, and say, we need to understand K, I can guarantee you in a room of 100 people, we're going to divide over K. That's a letter. You take a 100,000 letters put together into sentences and words, we are going to have division. It's the spirit of love and spirit of faith that guides, not sola scriptura. Number eight, because of the concept of the utter allure of the tangible, which we covered last week, um, not personal opinion, the spirit leads the church, and not the trappings of the physical uh, stuff that we create from the Bible to try to justify replicating the biblical model. Number nine, soul scripture inadvertently creates a spirit of domination that causes people to claim we know more than you. And that's, a, that's I mean, scripture is all over the place with that, saying don't do that, and yet that's what it does. I know more than you do. We're going to give you an example of that in a second. And finally, solo scripture sets seekers of truth on an endless journey to discover which religion and which religious approach is true. That's an endless approach. Who has it all right, rather than rely on the Spirit, to lead them into all manifestations of truth? You see? So somebody who is led by the Spirit and not sola scriptura could sit in a cottage and understand God better than anyone who has gone to every church on the earth looking for a brick-and-mortar uh, physical representation that is based off the sola scriptura model of what church should look like. That's why the Spirit is so powerful and Sola Scriptura is not. So before we get into the actual creation and compilation of the New Testament, that's coming next week. I thought we'd do it this week, but there's a few more things we have to cover. Number 11, we often find ourselves as, as Christians saying things like, the Bible is inerrant. The Word of God is completely reliable. We say it, we repeat it, but do we understand what we're saying when we make that claim? First of all, to anyone who is in the know, supposedly, the inerrancy of the Bible only deals with original manuscripts and we don't have any of them. So why bring it up? It's not even present with us. So we are going to look through and we're going to question the texts that we have the best that we can to try to understand what they're saying. Now, I think they're really, really close to, to being sound, but I don't think they are inerrant in the form that we have them. That's foolishness. What will teach us the difference? The spirit. So I think the proclamations are cr true. The original manuscripts are inerrant and inspired. The trouble with these blanket statements is they are either taken so zealously um, or so flippantly that it's hard to really know how to, to take such a statement of the Bible is the infallible word of God, it is inerrant, and understand how it's supposed to apply to us when we make such statements. Let me give you an example. If you go to the gospel accounts of the uh, Last Supper, okay, we come up with a few things that are taught between all the gospel accounts. First, Jesus sent two 
Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover. Secondly, they asked Jesus, where should we prepare it? And Jesus says, behold, when you have entered the city, a man is gonna be carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. Then he says, and you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I can have the Passover meal with my disciples? The next thing we learn is that he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make it ready. Then they went and did it. And then in the evening, Jesus and the rest showed up and they ate. And there was wine, there was bread, there was certainly other foods, and including a sauce that was probably made with raisins, dates, and garlic. Okay, you got all that? Those are the, the, the four gospel accounts of what happened with the upper room. So, we do communion in church. Most churches do it. They hold some sort of communion. I want to know, are we supposed to have two men go and prepare it? I mean, that's what Jesus did. He sent two to go. And are they supposed to, does it have to be done in a city? Because that's where they went. They went into a city. And, and, and does, that, does the room have to be owned by somebody else? Do we just go and kind of visit that room? And do we have to look for someone bearing a pitcher of water and follow them to that place and then say, where's the room supposed to be? You think I'm being ridiculous? I'm just taking the word as inspired, as inerrant, and as infallible. You see, I'm just trying to get through it. Does the room have to be upstairs? Because we do communion here on a lower level. So do we have to get upstairs to do it? And is it supposed to be furnished? Can you do it in a place without furniture? And are you supposed to eat it in the evening? Because we don't, we do it in the morning, if we ever do it. And do you always have to have bread, wine, certain foods, including sauces made with raisins, dates, and garlic? Now, obviously an extreme approach, right? Or is it? I mean, we do say we take every single word as inspired and inerrant, and we actually claim to use the word to establish how we worship and do church. So is what I just said so extreme? To me, if we have to obey every word that's in the scripture, then all of those things apply to us doing communion. And there's no doubt about it. The only other way is we either do it exactly or we skip some things. And if we start skipping, I want to know who gets to make the rules on what we skip and what we don't. Who gets to make those rules? Ask yourself, sola scriptura. It tells us right there. You got the written manual. Well, we should use reason, Brother McCraney. Whose reason? Your reason? The Pope's reason? The prophet's reason? The pastor's reason? The reverend's reason? The congregational's reason? Whose reason do we use? We use the Holy Spirit. And we subjectively decide how we're going to approach things, and we do it. This is part of the re uh, problem with Sola Scriptura. It, it, it will completely eradicate all division if we start just saying, okay, whatever, whatever. Number 12, we have to note that Christianity did not spring forward fully formed, okay? Jesus didn't establish it and it was a perfectly formed system at that time. And the reason I say that, I think it was in the sense of it being faith, love, and of the spirit, but we pick on the LDS because they have constantly shifted their focus on what they do. Oh, you know, you used to teach this, but you don't do that anymore. What do you think happened in the early church? What do you think happened in the first years? The reason the Holy Spirit was constantly moving and shifting around and moving them to do things, and that's okay. But sola scriptura stance automatically suggests that we have a manual and therefore stasis is the goal, not dynamism. Stasis is the thing that we should look for. Not true. The Holy Spirit blows. He changes things up. It goes different ways. Some things happen then. Some things. We criticize the LDS for having done that. And yet, that is really what the early church did. Now we try to reel it in and say, no, we're going to come up with a perfect concrete form based on the scripture on how to have the perfect church. It doesn't work. Number 13 is to take a very important passage, and I just want you to think about this. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I hail the positive truths this passage represents. And we use it to show the great import of the word in someone's life now. 
okay? But at the same time, I would suggest that if we take that in the physical sense, that that passage actually talks about the Word of God ripping people up. Just think of it in the physical sense and what happens when we all start dividing over doctrines. And let me read it to you again. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of souls and spirits, the joints and marrow, as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Think about it. I mean, it, it's certainly true in a spiritual sense, but when we use that Word of God, that letter that kills, that K, and we put it in between us, it, it is like a sword. And it starts chopping everybody in every direction to say, I know more than you. Number 14, have you ever noticed that the Holy Spirit has remained completely available and unchanged since the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, but the manuscripts for the Word of God have not? Have you ever thought about that? That we don't even have any of the original manuscripts. Now, why is that? Should we not have the original Holy Spirit either? I mean, why would God allow us to not have them? You know, defenders of soul scripture say things, well, that's because God wants us to live by faith. He wants us to trust that the manuscripts that we have now. So he, he got rid of them, you know? I would suggest this because God wants us to place our focus not on written word. That's why we didn't have a complete Bible until 1517 and beyond. He, he doesn't want us to take the letter and make it the thing that divides. I would say that that's why. You know, we take physical things. In the Old Testament, there is a story of Moses who lifted up a brass serpent. And, uh, and what happened with that brass serpent, do you know? Later on in the Old Testament narrative, we read that they begin to worship it. And uh, who was it that came along? I can't remember. And he grabs the brass serpent and he smashes it to pieces. And he says, Nehushten, which means a piece of brass. That's what he says. If we, maybe that's why God got rid of the original manuscripts and we have so much division or whether it's the West Cotton Hort and the, and the Sinaiticus or the Vaticanus or the, uh, or the King James, maybe it's all that because God is saying, I don't want you to start getting more Nehushtan brass pieces and hold them up. I worship, I live in spirit. Worship me in spirit and truth. The spirit lives in you. The word is there to help, but don't make it the thing. Have you ever considered, number 15, that God so loved the world he sent his only begotten son and his son was God, spirit, and man, flesh or material. And that after his son ascended into heaven that God sent the Holy Spirit and the written word. We have both being represented. When Christ came, he was all God, spirit, and he was man, flesh. And then after him, the Holy Spirit came, and then came the flesh, the Word of God. Same order, too. Spirit first, and then the fleshly thing. If you have considered that, let me ask you, did Jesus want to be known by his flesh when he walked the earth, or did he want to be known by his spirit that was in him? Did he want people to look at him and say, well, you're a Nazarene, and you have long hair, and, and whatever, brown eyes, and you were a carpenter. I want to worship you. Or did they say, you have to know me by the Spirit? Did he want you to know that he was related to God in that sense? Not that what he was in a physical sense. You get it? So in this age of spirit and material word, we have our rule of faith the same way. We don't look at the material any more than we would look at Jesus in his body and say, that's who I worship. We would say, what is it inside Christ? What is it that the Spirit is bringing that we seek? Do you see the comparison between the two? I haven't until I start thinking about this stuff. Number 16, God has called us to be lovers, not lawyers. Okay? Throughout Scripture, we read things like, knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. Or 1 Corinthians 13, 2, and though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith that I can move mountains and have not love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 1, 22, 23 says, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block to the Greeks foolishness, absolutely foolishness. Did you know that scripture when it was first written was written in a narrative form of, of block paragraphs or entire pages? 
that the whole thing came that way. That's how they were originally written. How can we not write them that way anymore? I mean, if God had his inspired people write them in blocks, why did we allow the scripture, which is supposed to be sola scripture, why did we allow it to get broken up? What was the thinking behind that? What happened? Men broke them up into chapter and verse. Oh, we think that's a great deal, don't we? Where did they get that idea? The Greeks. Well, why would the Greeks do that? Because they use it for argument. You mean, you mean that wisdom that Greeks seek after? The wisdom that they think this is foolishness, so they don't get it by the Spirit? Yes, the same thing. Have you ever received or done a deposition with an attorney? They have pages that have lines on one side, 28 lines, and there's two lines, and everything is, is okay, on line 17, you said this. On line 29, uh, 28, you said this. It's lined for logic. It's laid out that way for logic and reasoning and especially for argument, okay? So when the New Testament was put in a chapter and verse, it accomplishes the same thing, the same exact thing. And believers in some sense become lawyers instead of lovers. I can quote chapter and verse better than you. In fact, did you know, well, did you know it says this? Well, did you know it says that? Did you know it says this? Yeah, but I, it says, and it's just exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to be at each other's throats over jots and tittles when it was fulfilled by Christ. Proponents of chapter and verse say, well, this is the best way to understand every word of God. I think this is the thinking of a serial killer. Let me explain to you. A serial killer, demented, says, I think if I take that person apart and dismember every part of them, I'll understand them better. Instead of looking at a person as a whole, taking the zeitgeist of the message, reading the whole thing and saying, I really love what that, that whole package brought to me. But this passage and verse, it, it, it eliminated that ability. And so now we read it in these compartmentalized uh, things. And I would think that the original way that the word came to us should be, if we're going to place so much emphasis on it, the original format. I mean, how come it's not? How come we allowed men to come and break it up the way they did? Stuff to think about, you guys. I'm going to use our board to explain this. Okay? Here we go. This is, this is our first heart of the matter use of this new technology. We have, we have the Bible here. Now, down this way, we have people who say, I don't trust it. And we have people who say, I don't read it. Essentially, they're in the same, same boat. Doesn't really matter if you don't trust it or if you don't read it, you're kind of in the same boat. But over here, going this way, we have people who actually read it. Okay? Now, here's the thing about that. When you get into this place of actually reading letters, this is what we start to do with each other. We say, how often are you reading the word? And then we say, how much, how many times have you read the word? And then we start saying, have you memorized the word? Now, people love that one. I have a terrible memory, and people always, well, have you, are you memorizing? Because that is, oh, my gosh. And then, do you read the Old Testament? Uh-oh, you got to read that. And do you read the New? Now, listen, don't get me wrong. I read constantly in the Word. I love it. It's God's Word. But remember, it will serve to divide if we allow it. We'll keep going. Um, uh, let's see. Do you read the Greek? Do you read the Hebrew? You know, if you're really going to be someone who really knows the Lord, you got to know Greek and Hebrew. And so therefore, you, I mean, you're really going to be a good saint if you really took the time to learn Greek and Hebrew. And then you kind of start to get elevated in your ideas about what the word says. All of this can be avoided by someone who loves the Lord by the Spirit. All of it can be avoided, all this stuff. And then we go on. Have you read, you know, um, do you have a, a, a scholarship? And do you have degrees? And it keeps going. And uh, uh, do you understand rhetoric? And it keeps going. And where did you go to theology school? 
And this is what Sola Scriptura has created for us. And that is why we find Calvinism, which is very, very intellectual, and it takes and it parses scripture and creates this system. That's why it, it, it proliferates into our uh, campuses in university, Christian universities. And most people who come out of Christian university, which is a bastion for uh, the letter, are Calvinists. They've lost the spirit of the thing, and they have embraced all that stuff I did, we just talked about and everything that we've been talking about. Final thought, and we'll go to the phones. The study of language is extremely complex. If you've ever heard of a guy named Wittgenstein, or if you've heard of a guy named, um, uh, not Camus, um, uh, Chomsky, or Jacques Derrida, these guys are all linguists. And they, well, you read one page and you're like, you know, give me uh, something uh, to help me because the language that we read is so insanely difficult. So in addition to seeing the world around us from our particular chosen vantage points, we also, due to fear and laziness, and we simplify matters down and complex matters, and we assign them simplicity so we can cope. So we say things like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's all there is to it. That's what we say. Because, you know, when you have the authority here in your hands, you don't, you can go with a simplistic view and never search outside of it by the Spirit. Now, in a dogmatic mind of a zealot, maybe this is right, but I'm not so convinced. And let me give you an example why. Okay, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that's all there is to it. Okay, let's take a word from the Bible. One word. Beauty. It's in there. To begin with, when we hear or read a word, we take it into our minds, we filter it through our experience, our souls, our education, our temperament, even our mood, even our hormones at the time can define to us what we think beauty is. <laughs> Additionally, the individual's intelligence plays a role in how they're going to interpret and understand the word beauty when they read it in Scripture. It's interesting when we read, it's a singular event. Have you ever thought about that? There's no one there when we're reading. We do it ourselves. It's a singular activity. It's a very subjective activity, and we do it alone. And we're left to string words together and paragraphs and sentences and through all these subjective filters, and we begin to comprehend what things say and what they mean through those filters, and hopefully we have the Spirit. And that's the whole purpose right there of the Word. Can you see why Sola Scriptura is such a fail and why we have so many denominations, sects, and doctrines uh, and the body has divided? It's because of this fact that when we get to language, we do not see it in the same way. So Sola Scriptura on that faith basis alone is a fail. What has this approach given us? Um, Catholics would say, listen, that's right, Sean, and this is the reason that we have men who will teach you what you need to understand about the word. And, you know, so what has that, we, we've seen what soul scripture has given us. What does that give us? That gives us uh, transubstantiation. That gives us uh, perpetual Virgin Mary, calling men father, priests and their nightly activities, some of them. I mean, it gives us a whole assortment. You bring men in to try to interpret it that way. So uh, men in authority overseeing and creating doctrinal interpretations haven't fixed it either. The only way to approach the wording, the Christian setting, is to combine two elements and add a third. What do I mean? We take the word and those who are blessed to teach the word, and they do it the best of their ability. And so we have men getting there and women, and they take the word and they're teaching it the best of their ability. And it's presented to people in the subjective mind and all listen, and hopefully the spirit is helping them to discern what is true, discard what they believe is not, allow for everyone to walk away with whatever opinion they want. That is whatever they wanna believe, because it is subjective and they're gonna die alone and face God. So let's get back to that beautiful word before we open up the phones. In the New Testament, Romans 10, 15 says, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. How beautiful are the feet? One group of people will read this literally and actually think of preachers' feet being beautiful. Of that group, there are those who think beautiful feet would be pedicured, 
possibly lotioned and soft and pink. Others might think that the feet should be tough and apostle-like. Some may envision male feet. Some might think of female feet. In the study of beauty, the Greeks taught that we could categorize beauty as having proportion, symmetry, balance, and harmony. But we also have the fact that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I, in fact, personally think that the beautiful things of life are the decrepit things. I find Rome and its architecture far more beautiful than Las Vegas. I think that the crooked, bent feet of an apostle, I think the feet of Jesus would be the most beautiful thing as I've ever seen, and they are probably all tweaked. We know they have some holes through them, that's for sure, don't we? So we get rid of that Greek aesthetic automatically when it comes to subjective thinking. In fact, when it comes to beautiful things in the world, I think the broken and the withered and the old and the decaying things of the world are far more beautiful than the new and the contiguous and the balanced, but people will disagree. We have on beauty forever. There will be a group that will believe that the feet should be seen metaphysically, as in God uses those who he has sent as moving their feet, and so it's beautiful in God's eyes. They'll see it that way in a spiritual sense. Beautiful this, in this case, represents sacrificial feet, feet that represent the heart of those seeking to please God. There will be a group who might include elements of these perspectives and mix them with others, and in their observation and interpretation of beautiful feet, they will start to see how the Hebrews said things. And they will see when the Hebrews said beautiful feet, they're not talking about feet. And they'll read something from Adam Clark that says, Dr. Taylor remarks on this quotation, which is taken from Isaiah 52, 7, that feet are variously used in scripture and sometimes have respect to things internal and spiritual. For as the life of a man and the practice of piety are compared to walking, Psalms 1, 1, so his feet may signify the principles on which he acts and the dispositions of his mind. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Agreeably to this, the feet of the messengers in Isaiah and of the apostles in this verse may signify the validity of their mission, the authority upon which they acted, and any character or qualification with which they were so invested. Yes. Well, rightio. What do we do with all this? Some will read the Greek and discover that the Greek words for beautiful feet are horeos, which means belonging in the right season in some texts, and flourishing and beautiful, and then pus, which is feet or foot. How nourishing is the foot they'll see it, or how belonging to the right season is the foot of them that preach the gospel of peace. You getting tired yet? One freaking word in there, and we're saying sola scriptura. Can you see the idiocy of what we've bought into on this one too? I'm sorry, I know it sounds like I am blasphemous, or that I don't care about the order. I, I care about truth. And when someone tells me sola scriptura is this is how it's to be done, and I can see right now we're at 18, holes in the whole thing, and then I can see what it's produced, and then I read the Word and what it says, and we're going to get to what the Word says about it and give you the passages, and it's going to slay you. You're going to say, I have to agree, the same way that we people have done who have taken the time to listen with some of the other subjects that we've covered. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We have Mark in Ireland. We have Christian in Olympia, Washington, when we come back. Oh, I guess we're back. Brother, Brother Mark in Ireland. All the way from Ireland. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, my What's brother? I thought you were never going to stop talking. <laughs> you, uh, uh, anyway, um, you've got Celtic blood, right? What did you not do last Tuesday? What did I not do last Tuesday? I didn't did pray. I didn't. March the 17th. I didn't pray. No, March 17th. Ireland. I didn't drink. You didn't say Happy Patrick's Day. Oh my gosh! Oh, Mark, 
You know, uh, you, know what, you, you know what that means now, don't you? I'm I'm kicked out of the of the of the brotherhood. No, it means I am going to have to do it for you. Okay. And I'll have to do it in American accent too. Do it. Hi, everybody. This is Sean McCraney from Heart of the Matter, and I'd like to wish all of our Irish viewers a happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> That's awesome. That is really good, Mark. All right, listen, um, I, I, I know time's getting on here, so I'll be brief, okay? Um, since you prayed for me a couple of weeks, about three weeks ago now, uh, things have been weird. And the question to you is, how did you feel during the process of leaving the church and realizing that it may not be true? What, what was it like for you? Uh, it was a tug-of-war between uh, no, my spirit knowing what was wrong and my flesh loving the religion and my association with the people in it and my family and friends and just all the teachings that kind of sink in your heart that are really tough to get rid of. So it was a, a tug-of-war for about probably five or six years. Years? Years, yeah. Did you lose sleep? I never lose sleep. I never miss a meal. I never lose sleep. But I, I, uh, I do think a lot, and I did. I, that's why I kind of probably dove into the scripture so much because I really wanted to make sure. And any time a question would pop up, I would really try to ferret out what the truth was, and that helped me to be able to stand so firmly, dogmatically, against Mormonism when we started doing the show. Okay. Um, I, I don't know what it's like in America, but here, um, on this insignificant island of ours, I found that um, it's easier and more socially acceptable now to be gay than it is to say that you're a Christian because mm. of the clash of the two. Wow. Do you agree? You know, in a, in, I guess in a setting of the world and the way the non-Christian world sees things, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would mm. see that. I, I, I just wondered was it like that, because over here now you've got people, um, you know, Christian businesses, and uh, a, a very recent thing, only a couple of days ago, um, a, a business refused to print invitations for a, uh, a gay couple who were getting um, civil partnership uh -huh. um, and now they're being sued for uh, like uh, hatred or, or bigotry or whatever it is, and I, I, I just think it's crazy. You know, they're, what they're doing is they're following the you know their belief. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses will follow their beliefs in hospitals, and they won't receive blood, and that's honored. Yeah. So why is it that in Christianity, where we say, you know? Or, or when people follow the beliefs of their of their teachings, and you know, not not wanting to get involved in the you know the printing of these cards or whatever invitations, or whatever, no, they're going to be sued. You know, it's like a, you know, Mark. Uh, you know, I, I've been railing on sola scriptura, but I, I do believe in going to the Word as strongly for our reference. And all we need to do is look at Jesus and his apostles, and what did they do? What did they talk about? They did not talk about homosexuals. They didn't talk about homosexual marriage. They didn't talk about abortion. They didn't talk about anything that were nuclear armament. They didn't talk about conscientious objection. They talked about nothing except sharing the truth of Jesus. I mean, I, I'm just preparing this Sunday's lesson and we're talking about, hey, Jesus, he railed. He actually used words like, hypocrite and viper toward the religious, uh, pious, but he never made one mention uh, evil towards sinners, except True. repent, yeah. change, follow me. I don't know, uh, Mark. I think you make some good points, and I got to tell you, I don't know how, why you can do the American accent so well, but I fail <laughs> so miserably at the Irish. <laughs> All right, I, I just got one question. I'm going to leave on the question, and if some of your other callers can answer it, you know, so be it. So my question is to any um, members of the church out there, why in the church do we have a hymn 
that starts with the line, praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Ooh, good question. Okay? Great question. Thank you so much, my brother. Talk All right, to talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Great question by Mark. Why do? Why would such a hymn exist? Let's go to Christian in Olympia, Washington. Christian? Christian? Hello, hi. Hey, you're on the air. All right. Um, so I had uh, just a, a few questions. They're pretty off topic. But um, first one is, uh, when are you guys going to change your theme song? <laughs> okay, let me tell you what happened. Okay. When we were on local TV, they had something called BMI or whatever. Is that what it was, Derek? ASCAP BMI. BMI. And that paid for us to be able to use Johnny Cash. And uh, when we got kicked off that, we don't have the funds to pay for that monthly. And so you have to get permission and all this other stuff. So we had to buy the rights to a song, and that's the song we, we bought. So uh, some people really like that song. It does speak. The lyrics are good. He warbles a little bit, but... Uh, it's with us for now. Okay. I don't know. That was just a joke. But um, <laughs> I give him a full <laughs> answer. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, so another thing I was wondering about is uh, speaking in tongues. Yeah, my, and, under, my understanding of speaking in tongues from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is, yeah. is this. It is, uh, was uh, best uh, illustrated in Acts chapter 2. When the people from all different areas and dialects and languages came together, the Holy Spirit fell. They spoke in the different languages of those areas, and other people were able to understand them. So my estimation could be wrong. I know there's a thing about speaking with the tongue of angels that's spoken of in Scripture, the unspoken language, things like that. But speaking in tongues, one, is not for the church. It is for unbelievers to see a miracle where somebody is speaking in a language that no one else knows, like German, and somebody there who's never spoke German is able to interpret it. They have the gift of interpretation. That is the best definition of the speaking in tongues. Okay. Um, and then the last one was uh, exorcisms. Oh, uh, man. So, yeah, I was watching this show, and I was... I don't know. It's just one of those late night Netflix shows. I was like, what's this? I clicked on it and it was about exorcisms. And, uh, and I mean, it was, it's pretty crazy. And I don't, I don't know like where I would, like where we should stand on that. I don't, I don't know, dude. I, I I'm sorry. <laughs> I, we have Sterling in Iowa and we have John in Oklahoma, but I got to tell you a really quick story. My father-in-law now deceased is six foot five, three fifty, huge man. Great guy. Great heart big guy okay so we get called as mormons to go over to a lady's house and she is like (laughs) and he's called to give her a blessing a priesthood blessing so he's standing there and she's down here snarling and he's like he's like tapping his feet and then he looks at me and he goes he's from he was a retired army colonel he goes I'm afraid the damn thing's gonna jump into me. <laughs> <laughs> Highlight moment of ecclesiastical stuff. I don't know, dude. I believe that God won the victory on the cross and that God and, and Jesus, uh, yeah, I think demon possession is anybody who hasn't been born again, probably, to some extent or another, and that when Jesus moves in, the Holy Spirit moves in, I don't think we have to worry about it within the body. Okay. Hey, thanks for entertaining topic. Oh, yeah, of course. Talk to you. Bye. We're going to Sterling in Des Moines, Iowa. Sterling, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Hello, Sterling. You need to turn your computer down. Oh, sorry. Same problem we used to have. Okay. All right, what's up? Uh, yeah, is this Sean? This is. Hey, how you doing tonight, Sean? I'm doing all right, besides just performing an exorcism on myself. <laughs> well, um, that, that's, that's good, I guess. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, first off, I wanted to tell you that, you know, I've, I've uh, watched your show uh, quite a few times, and... uh 
I think you're great with, uh, you know, refuting more men and more money. Uh, but even with the Sola Scriptura, I had, I had a question uh, pertaining to last week's episode uh, when you you uh, came from Romans, Romans 3, 4. Yeah. Okay, now, when I read that, uh, well, here, I'll read it to you. It says, God forbid ye that God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Okay. Now, what does that mean to you? Uh, it means that God is right no matter what men think, and that as it is written, and, and Paul quotes from Psalms 116.11, that thou mightest be justified in thy sins, and he's quoting the scripture, talking about justification, that you might overcome when you are judged. I think the Holy Spirit and the Word is, is there to help us with that. I think, it's, I think uh, that's how I see it. Okay, but it's also said as it is written. Is that correct? Absolutely. Look, uh, Sterling, really, this is a good opportunity for me to, again, reiterate. I am a huge proponent of the Word of God. I love what is written. What is written is referential. It's a reference for us to read and seek and understand. I'm just trying to say we cannot base the modern church on what they did in the early church because it is written and say this is how you do it. I don't think it has application there at all. I think it's a spiritual application. But as it is written is very important to me. Very, very, very important to me. Okay, well, I, I also, too, uh, agree that it's very important. And I also agree that the Spirit is whom's doing the talking. That's why the Bible is the infallible Word of God, because the Holy Spirit, or the Word of God, fell upon every man that, or every vessel that took part in, in to completing the Bible, His Scripture. Okay, so let me ask you a let me ask you a question, Sterling. Okay. There are four men who gather together in a church, and they all read the same Bible. And the Bible that week was talking about baptism. One man says he believes it by sprinkling. One man says he believes it by splashing. One man believes it's not important, and another man says it has to be by immersion. And and and, and the one who says it has to be by immersion says, and you have to have it in order to be saved. Now let me ask you this, all of them read the same word, they all believe the same word, but they all differ dramatically on this point. You tell me, what takes precedent? What was written, or the spirit which says love each other and don't divide over things? Well, I agree with that too, but I also would agree that I would go to scripture and pretending on baptism, um, in which, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think is actually necessary that you have to be baptized by water because if you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, it's basically the same thing. But see, this isn't my point, my brother. My point is there are people, there are religions, there are entire people groups who argue over what baptism is and have made denominations of it. It's not what you think or I think. The question is what should prevail when there's division over non-essential things like that? I, I, okay, well, I believe that scripture shall prevail, and they're arguing um, over the traditions of men. Okay, scripture cannot prevail because they all read the same scripture, and they all disagree with what it's saying, Sterling. So what do we do with that? Well, I, okay, well, scripture is in a, a private interpretation, so I believe that amongst brethren is how this should be you know, brought out and discussed. Okay, and it's discussed, and they can't agree. So what do we do with that? What do you mean they can't agree? They, the four cannot agree. They all read the same passages, but they have differences. And, and no one can really be proven right or wrong. These differences are, are, are noted. So what should happen between the four brothers in Christ when they differ on a single point like baptism? Tell me, Sterling. Okay, well, as far as, I'm, as, as I can see here, I, I still would agree that Scripture would clarify this. Like you said, we would have to take it to the Greek if you want to see the exact uh, translation of the meaning of, of, of the Scripture. 
My brother, I love you. I wish you well with it. But I'm telling you, it'll never, ever work. And it doesn't bring the spirit of Christ, which is unity and love and not division. Sterling, we are out of time. I got to let you go. I want to apologize to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We will get, please call next week. John will put you up first. I'm sorry we ran out of time. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys start.